But what I've really done in my career is I've tried not to say no. Um, and I think that that has been the most helpful thing. Like, will you go and work this detail? Okay, doesn't, doesn't sound like a ton of fun, but I'll do it, right? And what I've learned in saying yes all of those times is um, you learn a lot about how things happen behind the scenes when you say yes a lot. What up, Black and Blue fam? Welcome to the Black and Blue Podcast, where we celebrate diversity in U.S. law enforcement. My name is Dale, and I'm the host. Just like it says right there, I'm the host of this show. And uh, hey, thank you for everybody for joining me here today. But uh, today is a very special, different kind of episode. This is Black and Blue Street Life. This is where I take the Black and Blue Podcast out of the studio and into the streets. And today I'm at a beautiful facility in one of the most picturesque cities in America, uh, Beachside Community. So, uh, but before I get to that, hey, make sure you like, subscribe, and uh, share the show on any of my um, Black and Blue podcast platforms. You can find me anywhere at Black and Blue US. All right, so like I said, I'm in one of the most beautiful cities, and that, be, that being uh, Manhattan Beach, California. I'm here with the chief of police here. So everybody, Black and Blue fam, please help me welcome to the show, Chief Rachel Johnson. Well, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Absolutely. How are you doing today? Oh, I can't complain. It's a Monday. Um, it's the first like really cold day uh, in California this winter, but uh, no complaints here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, tell me, how, how long have you been here as a chief? I've been there uh, as a chief about 18 months. I started in August 2022, so finally getting my feet underneath me, finally know where, where places are, where people refer to them. So it's nice to settle in, for sure. Yeah, so, yeah. so you're a brand new chief, huh? Brand new, yeah, showroom okay. new, right? Is this your first chief stint anyway? It is, yeah. It's, uh, it's, I was provided a wonderful opportunity to come here and be the chief, and it is my first time, and I'm, I'm having a really, really good time. Nice, nice. And uh, wh where'd you come from before that? So, I, you know, this is my fourth police department, so I've kind of um, had an interesting uh, career path. I was hired out of the military by the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and I worked there for a little over four years after the academy, um, working in the jails, training uh, new deputies in the jail and things like that. Um, I spent the bulk of my career at Newport Beach. Uh, I was there for um, a little over 14 years, was an officer there, a sergeant and lieutenant. And then my final stop before landing here was at the Laguna Beach Police Department where I was a captain for about two and a half years. Nice, nice. And then uh, where did you do your military time? I spent uh, a year in Okinawa, Japan, and I spent two and a half years in Miramar down in San Diego. Nice. What, what branch was that? The Marines. 
Oh, all right. Yeah. Thank you for your service. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you for your service. So then you, you left that and you went to the Orange County Sheriff's Department. How, how was that? Yeah, about three weeks after my enlistment was over, I already had a, you know, an assignment to go to the academy. So that timing worked out uh, really, really well for me and uh, had a really good time um, working for the sheriff's. I mean, we'll always be grateful for that first opportunity. You know, the, in law enforcement, especially when you're new, you know, you apply at several different departments, hoping someone will tell you yes, that you'll want, they'll want you and you'll want them yes, and that yes. that will come together. So was, I always be grateful uh, for uh, my first stint there, for sure. Okay, but you had to do some time in the jails and not everyone is, is into that sort of thing, right? Well, I mean, the time in the jail was good. It was instructive for me. I was 23 when I got hired by the Sheriff's Department. I'd been in the military, sure, met lots of different people, but I'd never been in any trouble as a kid. And really, it was, I didn't know how to talk to people that were different than me, right? And so the jail was a really good opportunity at that age, being so young, to learn how to talk to people, to be able to um, really uh, educate myself, because if you, if you treat uh, the inmates with respect, they'll tell you almost anything. And so developing relationships with them, um, developing a, a rapport with them where we could talk about the crimes they committed, why they committed them, and all those things, all that real inside information that was very helpful when I went to the field. Yeah, yeah. I, I talked to a lot of deputies, and they tell me that that experience of, of talking with the inmates one-on-one -on -one right. really helps them when they get out on the streets. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah it's definitely yeah. helpful. Sometimes you recognize them as well, which is awful, also helpful. Um, because you, because at the time, at least when I was a deputy, you saw a lot of inmates repeatedly because um, like uh, drug possession, possession of any sort of illegal drug was still a felony. So you still got arrested and went to county jail, at least for a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you saw a lot of people who aren't able to kick their uh, drug habits. You saw them uh, fairly uh, regularly at the jail. Okay, okay. And did you grow up out here? Or? No, no, no. I am from Houston, Texas. Oh. I grew up there. My whole family is there. Um, and it's a wonderful place to, to be from. Um, I just, <laughs> but you know, the bird, the insects are the size of birds and the humidity is a real thing. And so I'd always wanted to live in California. And when I was uh, stationed here for my, uh, last duty station, um, I tried to do what I could to make it my home and uh, not have to go back home in Texas. How often do you get back? I get back once or twice a year. It just depends on the year. Uh, luckily I have a few relatives, um, that come out and visit me as well. Um, so I get to see them. But yeah, a couple of times a year uh, at most these days uh, to get back there. Really? From mm -hmm. Texas and didn't want to go back, huh? It, like I said, it's a great place to be from. <laughs> the food is great. Uh, the people are great. Um, the um, humidity, not necessarily that great. Yeah. And then uh, financially for police officers, it's even though Houston's the fourth largest city in the country, uh, they don't pay very well, like just his, like just historically in the state in terms of making a good wage for the things that you uh, are called upon to do as a police officer. Don't, they don't get paid as well as we do here. So um, certainly that was a factor as well. Now, is it on a scale where they don't get paid for, because of course they're not going to make as much as they do right. as we do in California, but mm -hmm. for the state, is it, is it still, I mean, can you make a good living or do you have to work two or three different jobs as well? Well, that's what I always hear is, you know, when I have a couple of family members that are either in law enforcement or the fire service and a lot of why they like what they do is like, well, it allows them to, to work extra jobs because back there you can work, you know, security at a nightclub or at a restaurant in your police uniform, even though it's an off-duty job. And so um, those are opportunities are very lucrative for them back there. And I just never, I didn't want to always have to rely on secondary or tertiary income um, just to make a living.
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can see that as a liability. I don't know how they authorize it. It seems like a liability to me. Right. I had a buddy that uh, worked for out here for L.A. County, and he did a security job on the side mm -hmm. and wor working at nightclubs. And he got into a, a big tussle. Right. And, you know, when they see that you work somewhere else and they're going to sue, of course, you know, gonna they're going to sue. The, yeah. the deep pockets, right? The deep yeah. pockets. So, yeah. so you know, his, his investigators at the time, they, they cleared him, but they told him, hey, you got to make a decision. Right. You either want to work with us or you want to work over there. So, of course, he, <laughs> right. he gave up the security job. But for sure. I, I can't see, you know, how they allow that in those other places. Yeah, it's definitely interesting, for sure. Yeah, definitely, for sure. So then you came out here after you did your time in the military. How was, how was Okinawa? Okinawa was great. Um, you know, I requested uh, to go from my... Um, my school, um, my military school to Okinawa as my first duty station, had no idea what I was asking for, you know. So I, I think I was 20 when I was there and um, very interesting culture, very interesting people. I got my Japanese driver's license, learned how to drive on the opposite side of the road and the opposite side of the car. Yeah. And so uh, a really uh, wonderful experience. And for me, I always tell people that the Marine Corps lived up to the commercial. Like I got to see the world, I got to do a bunch of different things. They certainly um, checked all the boxes on the commercial for me during my time there. Yeah. That's awesome, that's yeah. awesome. Have you ever been back since? No, I would like to go back, but I, I haven't had the opportunity, unfortunately. Do you, do you like to travel or? Uh, I do like to travel, but I have kids. And so, you know, that's yeah. all, all my money, you know, <laughs> and, um, and my free time goes to them. So we uh, do a lot of road trips and, and local things like that. But with, you know, three little kids, it just, you know, I can't uh, jet set off to, to Europe oh, like I'd like to. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, I've been there, done that. My, my two are in college, so nice. we can... We can go off and leave. I just tell you we went to Costa Rica. So, right. Yeah. So we can do that now, now that they're, you know, out and about doing their own thing. So yeah, that's wonderful. I yeah. look forward one, to one, it. One day you'll get there too. <laughs> I look forward to it. Yeah. One day you'll get there. So, um, you know, you have three little ones and you're, you're doing that daily thing. How's, how's that, you know, coupled with being a police officer, how's that work out for you? Well, I mean, they're not so little anymore. They're 12, 15 and 17, but, okay. um, you know, there's, you know, I call them, they're homeschooled and they're just like short college students, right? They think they know everything. They're eating all my food, eating me out of house and yep, home. Yep. Um, but they're great. You know, they, they know what I do for work. Um, and certainly if there's anyone to keep you humble, it's your kids because they don't care that you're the police chief, you know, or, you know, or that I was a captain before, you know, they're, to them, I'm just their parent. And, you know, just someone, you know, in the way of fun, right? You know, and, and in the way of they're having a good time telling them, to you know, do their homework or, or get off their computer and things like that. Now I noticed you said, <clears throat> excuse me, that they're homeschooled. Mm -hmm. So do they get a lot of social media? Are they allowed to to look at social media or? They are allowed to look at social media. They have YouTube. I mean, they look at YouTube. They don't have their own social media accounts, unlike any of the uh, more popular ones or anything like that. Um, they have their friend groups and that they you know are in chats with with their friends. But um, we really the blessing about. Um, them being homeschooled is that um, they're still they're still kind of naive, if you will, about a lot of things. Like they they know a lot about a lot if you ask them about world events, but they're not so into uh, TikTok and other things like that. So that part's really not really. Nice. Yeah, that's what I was getting at because you know with social media, <clears throat> excuse me, and you know the the media in general, mm -hmm. our profession is not looked at too kindly nowadays. Um, has that rubbed off on them? Have they seen that influence? you know, that mom works in the profession, but it's a profession that's not looked at kindly nowadays? Uh, they've seen it, but you know, the, the beauty of um, 
having them homeschooled and always talking to them about things, whatever that thing is, um, is that you can have like really good discussions, you know, at an age appropriate level and kind of explain, explain why people feel the way they feel about things and have them have like a deeper understanding than maybe uh, they would otherwise. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So then you said you were at the Sheriff's Department for a little while and then you left to, where'd New, you go? Newport Beach. Newport Beach, that's yeah. a beautiful community. It's a great community. Yeah, yeah. How long did you do there? Uh, like almost 15 years. Um, had a lot of fun there. Um, I was given a lot of opportunity. Um, I worked in the office of the chief of police for a little bit in community relations. Um, I worked in special events uh, as a sergeant, was a crisis negotiator for a while, worked with our explorers and our mounted unit and our volunteers. So I had a really fun time there. Uh, a lot of opportunities, a lot of um, growth that I think put me on the path to be a chief, I think happened at Newport Beach. How, how large is Newport? Uh, they have about 149 uh, sworn officers, and that's from officer to chief, you know, and another 100 plus um, civilian employees. So not huge, but certainly not a small place. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. <laughs> it's get, It gets a lot of, you know, action as far as, you know, people coming through there, tourists. Oh, so I'm sure a correct. lot of tourists come through there all the time. And we were talking about, you know, Kobe living there, Kobe Bryant living right. there and all that sort of stuff. So I'm sure you, you, you've seen a, your, your fair share of stuff over there. Well, the great thing, this is my third beach city in Manhattan Beach, working in Manhattan Beach. And the great thing about working in beach cities that, is that everyone comes to the beach. And so certainly you have people of means who live in the city, who live by the beach. You have, you know, all manner of celebrities and sports figures that live in the city. But you also just have like regular people who hear about the city and want to come because it's a, it's a beach city and it's a beautiful place to be. And so um, as a police officer and working in the city, you, get, you just got you know, all the, the full range of experiences because, you know, there are, like I said, a lot of people of means um, that you would deal with on quality of life issues, but you'd also deal with people who have criminal um, criminal backgrounds because they come to the beach too. So it's a super fun place to work. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of quality of life issues, um, a big one out here in California is homelessness. Mm -hmm. Did you see a lot of that over there? Do you see a lot of it here in Manhattan? Well, I think a lot is relative, right? Um, Certainly, um, from a from a human perspective, you don't you want you don't want to see anyone on the streets, right? My my heart breaks um, when I see people panhandling or you know uh, or otherwise unsheltered, like from a human perspective. Um, but working here and you know working in Laguna Beach and and uh, Newport Beach before that, um, while there were certainly people who were unsheltered in the city, um, in the grand scheme of things, were there a lot of people? Um, no, um, there weren't. But you know. Uh, um, you know, one is kind of too many when you think of it from a human perspective, but that's also um, not, not a realistic perspective for what's achievable even under the best conditions with homelessness. Sure. Uh, I just asked you that question because, you know, say Venice, mm -hmm. where you see a lot of that, and you would think that if you're unhoused that maybe the beach would be a nice, you know, temperate weather mm -hmm. and all that sort of, you know, climate over there to be kind of conducive to, you know, maybe being in a tent. So is it, did you see a lot of that here or? Well, it's certainly, you know, uh, when you put the beach, you're right. Um, it's generally, the weather is generally nice there, most, more place, more often than not. Um, there's sometimes showers so that people can rinse off at the beach, right? So there's at least a, me a method to uh, clean your, cleanse yourself or your belongings. And so certainly I can see why um, some people choose the beach over other places, just because it's a little more laid back. People are expected to hang out at the beach. You know, um, so it's a little bit, um, 
I wouldn't say more acceptable, but I do think I understand why it's more attractive to people who are unsheltered for sure. Yeah, when I was working patrol, you know, like I said, I live and work out in the Inland Empire and in the summer it can get up to 115, 120 degrees. And, you know, when I speak to them one on one, I was like, why are you here? Why wouldn't you want to be out in the beach? But, you know, I guess it's all it's all relative to where, you know, your situation is. Well, that and what I've found in my uh, years of dealing with the unsheltered is a lot of them um, go with what they know. Right. And so people who are unsheltered in this area often have ties to the area. It's, f it's what's familiar to them. So they know where maybe to where, where they can get a sandwich, where they can get services. They know how to get to there from here. And so a lot of times what I've found is people tend to stay with what's familiar to them. And so that's what I think probably keeps people where you work okay. as well. You know? True, true, true. All right. So then you went from Newport to Laguna, another yeah. beach community. How right. was that? Well, I started, uh, sorry, February 3rd, 2020. And so, you know, what I, the joke I've made since then is don't, start a new job six weeks before a global pandemic, right? Because that's, that's yeah, what I did. Yeah, I, yeah. you know, <laughs> good advice. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I start there, it's, you know, early February, you know, it's all good. I'm a captain, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? Just got the job. And we start hearing about COVID and the city manager, we're in a meeting and he says, well, Rachel, I want you to, to learn more about what's going on and, and, you know, help us out. Right. And so I'm looking at him like, you know, I don't even know the people's names in the room in this meeting because I'm so new. But now we're going to um, now I'm going to work on COVID. And so I actually spent about a year and a half working with the city manager on our COVID response and like, you know, daily meetings talking about like how this is impacting the business community, how it's impacting us internally in terms of our workforce, whether or not you know, employees can ride together in the same car to conduct, you know, business of the city and all these things. I spent about a year and a half um, being the COVID czar um, at Laguna. So it's just a really interesting um, experience because we were, you know, building the plane while we were flying it, um, just trying to figure out different things and, and how to address things that were happening in the city like every day um, that were related to the pandemic or the pandemic lockdown. So very interesting time there for sure. How does Laguna compare to Newport as far as size um, of the city, size of the department and activity? So uh, Laguna's area-wise about a third of the size of Newport, um, had about a third of the employees as well. Um, a lot of very similar activity just in terms of um, what happens at the beach and what happens in a city that, acquire, that attracts tourists and has a lot of tours, restaurants and uh, restaurants and things like that, where you deal with people overindulging in alcohol, you deal with some of the unsheltered and you deal with quality of life issues. And so those things were very, very similar and they're very uh, relatable here as well, where we do have, uh, obviously no one's immune to crime and we have crime here, but a lot of our um, overarching community concerns have to deal with quality of life issues. Yeah, yeah. So the, the three agencies you mentioned before, Orange County Sheriff's, Newport and Laguna, those are all Orange County agencies. Right. And then now you find yourself up here in LA County. How's that transition for you? Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, what I was told before I was even considering a chief's job or, and s certainly considering this job was, you know, if you ever have a chance to work in the South Bay, you'll love it in the South Bay. It's a great time. And that has definitely been true for me. Um, the, my surrounding chiefs have been awesome. The support that we receive um, and that we give is really great. And so for me, it's a best case scenario. Um, I came to Manhattan Beach a lot in my off time before to 
eat and, and enjoy the restaurants that we have here. So it, for me, it's, it, it wasn't unfamiliar. Uh, the city wasn't unfamiliar. When I started doing my research and learning more about um, the kind of uh, issues the police department tackles, I thought it was very um, similar to what I'm used to. So it's, it's been a great fit. Um, but certainly it was a transition from having a lot of contacts at a lot of agencies in the county to really having to adjust and, and start fresh. Yeah, absolutely. And what I said here in the intro about it being a picturesque city, it wasn't just a line. I mean, just driving up here and you can see the beach from from the, the department and wow, I mean, that's that's just amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I feel very fortunate to be here. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So what kind of interest are you to get into this profession in the first place? I know you said you were in the, in the military, um, but you were in Okinawa and you were in places like that. What kind of sparked your interest to want to get into law enforcement? I am very one of those very um, rare people that this is the only job I've ever wanted. Like I've wanted to be a police officer just forever, um, whether that was watching, you know, T.J. Hooker or Cagney and Lacey back in the day or other, you know, police shows as I was coming up. Uh, really wanted to be a police officer, really wanted to serve um, and be there for people. When I got out of high school, obviously too young to become a police officer. And so did a little bit of college, um, really wasn't having a good time in college, probably wasn't mature enough. So that's how I ended up uh, enlisting in the military. And I actually wanted to be a military police officer. That was the first job I talked with my recruiter about. And he says, well, you have to be 5'5". Five five. I think they had a height restriction at the time. Really? Yeah. And so um, he said, well, what else do you want to do? I said, well, let's, let's see. And so it, uh, we, you know, at the time, they guaranteed you a job field. So, like, you know, you'd be guaranteed one of six jobs um, on your contract. And so I really wanted to do crash fire rescue. Sounded really cool, right? Put out you know, aircraft, if they, you know, if there's an incident and like, it'd be awesome. Right. Um, and what I got to do was something completely different, but still in that guaranteed field. So, um, I was an air control electronics operator, uh, which like loosely translated meant that I talked to aircraft when they were in dogfights. So a little bit, a little bit different than crash fire rescue for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So then you, you got into the profession, you know, eventually has it been everything that it, that uh, cracked up to be before? It's been more than that. It's, you know, I was able to, I had one enlistment in the military. I applied uh, to be a deputy sheriff with Orange County about six or eight months before I was due to uh, get out of the military. As luck would have it, about three weeks after I got out of the military, I started the academy. And so it's been um, just everything I expected and more because, you know, obviously, you know, having done this for as long as you have or as I have, you know, what you see on TV, you know, you take about 10 percent of that and take away the theme music and you expand the report writing and yep. and other things. And, and that's more realistic. But the opportunity um, when I was a police officer and a sergeant to really help people or impact a community problem, like it's tremendous. Right. And you can't get that in any other profession. And then as a manager, you know, lieutenant, captain, chief, the opportunities I have um, internally to uh, make sure my folks are ready for the next thing, make sure they uh, feel prepared to take on new challenges and really invest in them um, is tremendous. And, and I, I really enjoy that. And then in working with the community as well to um, tell our story and let them know how their police department is, is working for them um, are great. And so I, I could not have asked for um, really a better story. For sure. Absolutely. 
So we spoke off air beforehand about, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to start the podcast. And I kind of told you that, you know, 2020 was kind of the impetus in that. And I wanted to, you know, show people that look like us that we have skin in this game as well and, and, and join the profession, not just complain from the sidelines. Um, so we need more diversity in this profession. We're not there yet, but, you know, we're working on it. What's, uh, what's the Manhattan Beach Police Department kind of look like as far as its community? I mean, you're a woman of color as well, but, you know, what about the rest of your department and, and the community? Well, I'm very proud of our department, and I can take almost no credit for it, right? Because I've only been here about 18 months, right. and it takes us quite a bit of time to hire someone. And so a lot of people that I've hired over the past year were, you know, at least in the first half of my tenure, were already in our background process when I started, right? And so it's only, you know, people that we're starting to see now or within the last six months are people that, that, were, that started the process when I was the chief of police, right? And so looking... Eternally at our workforce, our workforce is um, very diverse. You know, um, we have a lot of people from um, very different backgrounds, people who speak a variety of languages, um, a very educated workforce. Um, but we like more, um, like I said, I was a little bit surprised by how diverse we actually were just in terms of where people are from and their skill sets and abilities. And um, I'm very proud of that work that's been done by uh, those who came before me um, to set us up like this. Is that kind of different from what you've seen before in the other agencies or is that kind of like something that's the profession is working towards and we're getting better at it? Well, it's, that's an interesting question, right? Um, at Laguna Beach, I saw a lot of diversity and a lot, um, you know, there were a lot of um, sworn women who worked there and things like that, and that was a big push for the chief that hired me, uh, Laura Farinella. Um, here at Manhattan Beach, we've had a number of different chiefs over the years. I mean, the um, the chiefs that came before me, um, there's a woman of, as a woman, uh, two men of color before me, and so we, we've had a lot of opportunities here, at, um, especially at the top and, and throughout our ranks, to really be reflective of, of the people we serve. Um, I, I laugh a lot um, when I think about uh, our hiring practices because I, th I think that who we hire is often a reflection of who um, our hiring uh, personnel are, right? I had a colleague who really um, liked to hire baseball players, like people who played baseball in college or uh -huh. maybe pl played the minors and things like that. He just liked them. He felt like they had, you know, good teamwork and things like that. And so... Um, for a little bit, when he was our hiring manager, we hired a lot of baseball players, and they all looked the same, right? And and so I think it really it really depends on the outlook of your of your hiring person, for better or for worse. I don't say that in a negative way. Um, what your department will look like, and also, you know how how well um, what your as the chief, what I'm telling my folks are important. How well that's actually being relayed um, to our training team. Like for instance, here. Um, with our uh, training sergeant, you know, he and I had a talk when I first started, you know, and he was really just trying to see the threshold, my, my threshold for things, right? You know, does, does a person have to be a perfect angel to be hired here or, or what, what am I looking for? And what I told him is I want, um, I want good people here. I don't want to lower our standards, um, but good people make mistakes too, right? And there are certain mistakes that are, you know, not won't allow you to carry guns. So we can't even talk about those folks. But, you know, people who may have gotten in a fight in high school or something like that, okay, well, they're 25 now. Let's, let's look at the whole person and see how they've matured and developed. And I find that when you do that, that really kind of opens up like, who you hire and, and that you have a, a, a workforce that is more reflective of, of where you live, your community. 
Right, right. Let's talk about that because our profession has been taking a hit and not a lot of people want to be cops nowadays. And so are you having a hard time recruiting people? I know you say you don't want to lower your standards, but, you know, at some point we've got to, you know, recruit because we need people out on the streets, right? Right. And so certainly we are competing with, you know, similarly situated agencies for the same pool of candidates. And, you know, it, we call it a candidate pool, right? That's what we've always ca called it. But it might be a candidate puddle at this point because it's just, it's small. It's small. And if we are looking at a candidate and we think they're qualified, you know, you can bet there are at least a couple of other agencies that are looking at them as well. And so you're certainly competing for limited resources um, in a really interesting time in the profession. So that's, yeah, it's certainly tough. And it's um, something we focus on a lot here is trying to do what we can to attract quality candidates who want to work in Manhattan Beach and want what we're about um, in the face of, you know, a lot of other, you know, uh, competing interests with hiring and things like that. How does your department stack up against other agencies in the area, you know, recruiting from the same pool of candidates? I think we're doing well. You know, I think we're, we're um, at or better than uh, most of our um, contemporaries around the South Bay. We're, we're doing well, but it is, you know, something that I think about a lot because just as soon as you get close to full staffing or you get close to, you know, that's when people start retiring, you know, and, and uh, we're, you know, we were just discussing this the other day, you know, uh, we have a number of people who could retire right, from our sworn ranks, as well as our professional staff, that doesn't mean they're going to, doesn't mean that's their plan, but they've reached minimum retirement age. And so you have to consider that in your succession planning and things like that. You know, what am I going to do in two years when I, when I might have this massive turnover at my supervisor and management ranks? And so it's constantly a consideration trying to make sure, one, we have enough people to backfill for those folks, but then the people who can promote in those positions that they're ready. Um, to promote and take on the next thing. Right, right. So let's talk about you being a female in this profession. You know, me being a male, it's, you know, I know it's a male-dominated profession, and but, we, you know, the 30 by 30 uh, initiative is, is out there as well, trying to recruit more females into the profession. How's, uh, how's been your experience as, as a female? I know you were even in the military. What was, what was that experience like? Well, um, it's, it's very different. Um, being in the Marine Corps, only 10% at the time of the Marine Corps was women. Right. And I worked in the air wing. And so, you know, I was either, you know, there's either me and someone else in my unit or just me in terms of women, um, which can be tough sometimes because um, no matter how great a boss you have, there's just things that they don't think about. When we reconfigured our office once, um, you know, my boss like, we can all just change in here. I'm like, no, we can't all just change in here. Like, I can't change in here with you guys. And I don't want to walk in here with you guys changing right. clothes. Right. So just sometimes things that people don't think about. And then um, the only time I've worked with a lot of women at once professionally was when I was assigned to the women's jail when I worked for Orange County Sheriff's because that was mostly women with only a handful of men assigned in the facility. And But since that time, it's been, you know, just working with, you know, my beat partners or whoever I was assigned. And uh, it's been good. I've, I can't say that... Um, it's been a negative experience, but sometimes it can be an isolating experience, being the only woman on your shift or, or you know, um, or in your unit and things like that. Do you ever find in your career that you were kind of pigeonholed into certain things and you had to break that mold um, because you were female? Did, you know, does it, your sergeant at the time when you were on patrol, you know, kind of gear you towards the, the uh, sexual assault crimes or something of that nature? 
I did, yes, um, as a short answer. And, you know, what I found was, like, um, a friend of mine who promoted to sergeant right around the time I did, you know, everything, um, I, I don't want to uh, misstate it here, but things were not fun. Um, were all the things that kind of we were, like, pushed to do. Like, why don't you do this fundraiser? Okay, well, who wants... Who wants to go ask for money and then who wants to get people to volunteer to be there right like very um, good things in terms of community events and things like that but not fun right um, not necessarily a good time in terms of all of the logistics and things like that and so um, that was always just kind of what we did is like you know um, was we asked certain people to do certain jobs and um, what I, I really lucked out when I went to the chief's office, I had a sergeant who kind of um, really wanted me to work uh, for him. And he allowed me to do some training, some detective training, some SWAT training and things like that. And really kind of opened people's eyes to who I was and showed me a lot about the department, which was um, very helpful to me. But what I've really done in my career is I've tried not to say no. Um, and I think that that has been the most helpful thing. Like, will you go and work this detail? Okay, doesn't, doesn't sound like a ton of fun, but I'll do it, right? And what I've learned in saying yes all of those times is um, you learn a lot about how things happen behind the scenes when you say yes a lot, you know? I was asked to write a policy. I was a police officer working in the chief's office. And my sergeant is like, well, you're not busy. Why don't you write this policy, right? Well, I've never written a policy. I was a police officer. I've never written a policy. You know, um, but he allowed me to do it and allowed me to like kind of fail forward with it. And so then it's like, well, yeah, when something else like that comes up, it's like, well, I've done that before. Like, let me help you or I'm happy to do it. And I've I found that I've said yes enough in different facets of my career that I have a lot of um, knowledge that's helped me be a chief. Right. I've said, yeah, oh, yes, I'll manage that grant or I'll do this thing or I'll look into how we do this as a city and research this thing. And then you look around and you know a lot about how things work in the department when you're willing to say yes um, a lot of the time. Yeah, writing policy, that's a, that's a big one, and that one, and, and grants, because that, that's another big one in, in a lot of departments, you know, OTS grants and all that sort of stuff. And you get that experience, that's, that's gravy, that's gravy. Awesome, awesome. And did you learn a lot, a lot about, uh, you know, politics of the city? Did you ever work with, uh, you know, the city councils and all that sort of stuff before you became a chief? I did. Um, I got to work a little bit when I was in the chief's office with like school boards and the city council just on, on minor things, um, which was nice. Um, and I had a couple things not go so well. And so that was very instructive in terms of, you know, um, what you learn about how when things are politically sensitive, you know, people start pointing fingers away from themselves. Right. And so that was very instructive um, for me as an officer. And then as a sergeant, I got to work in uh, special events. And so working in special events, you're working with, you know, the presidents of the chambers of commerce in your town on events. And um, you're working with uh, Elks Lodges and all those community groups, um, as well as members of the city council on things and different department heads. And so all that stuff is really helpful in um, 
your, my path to chief. Just learning how to work with elected officials and how to make sure, like, when you have an incidental contact with an elected official, that you tell your boss, like, pretty quick, like, hey, I talked to yeah. council member so-and-so, and this is what we talked about, and this is how we came to be talking. I just wanted you to know. You know, so you, um, I was very fortunate to have those experiences, you know, kind of organically throughout my career. So as a chief, I had a pretty good idea of, you know, the, the dynamics of, of working with elected officials and things like that. And what's the transition been like for you being an, an external hire as a chief of police? What's that transition been like for you and your department? Well, it's been a lot of plates um, because... I don't know anybody's name when I start, right? And so for a long time in my office, I actually had um, all of our org chart um, with everyone's pictures in my office. And so I, when I would meet someone in the hallway and they'd tell me their name, I'd come back to my office and I'm like, okay, that was this person that was trying to learn everyone's name. And so you're trying to do those little things, right? Because how long do you want to be like, hey, you, right? You right, want to yeah. be part of the organization as, as organically as you can and as quickly as you can. So... You know, learning people's names, learning how we do things, um, trying to figure out where everything is. It's, it's a lot at once. And at the same time, um, you're expected to be the chief like from the beginning, right? And, and obviously people give you grace to learn things and, and there's always that learning curve. But while you're doing all the things just to try to learn how the organization works, you're also expected to still present to the community and talk about things that are important to them and be responsive. And so... Um, the first year plus um, was just, you know, a sprint. It was definitely a sprint um, trying to get all of that done. I, you know, have two captains that report to me. And, you know, two months after I got here, I promoted someone to captain. So, you know, I have one of the two people that reports to me that's brand new in their job. And so trying to get through them through learning their job while I'm learning my job. So it's been um, a real sprint um, so far. Yeah, yeah. I know you said that, uh, you know, part of your learning here was learning how they did things here in Manhattan Beach, but you as a chief, I'm sure you had your own ideas and, and wanted to do things a certain way. Have you changed uh, any number of things since you've been here? I've changed a few things, but one of the things I learned along the way um, is you can, only, you can only change things that the right people can accept them, right, which is not quickly. You know, especially not in uh, a law enforcement organization, just because people are here for a long time and things tend to move at a pace, right? And it's that you can't come in and change 10 things in your first 100 days and expect that to go well. You can't change two things in your first 100 days and expect that to go well, depending on what you're going to change. And so really trying to see what we do, why we do it uh, before I make changes um, has been a big part of my first year. And then the changes I am trying to make, um, doing that in a way that people understand the why and people understand, you know, why it's important uh, before, and that we have some room to like, okay, this is new and this is different and we're going to do it, but we may not be perfect for a while and that's okay. And really trying to have my team understand like that about me is that um, we're going to fail forward on things we've never done, but we will never get better at them unless we do them. So just trying to... And, really promote that spirit of let's just try, um, let's see what happens when we do, and we will figure it out together. Yeah, it's, cops don't like change, right? Isn't no. it, that old saying, mm -hmm. cops hate the way things are and the way things are gonna be? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, and so uh, it's, it's always what I find and here and everywhere else I've worked, no matter what you do, communication is always an issue. 
um, trying to communicate um, and over communicate is really one of my big things is um, I, I tell my captains, we talk about it in command staff, we have command staff minutes that are published every week that we have command staff so the troops can read them. But even, even then with all of that, if there's something that's going on, I try to still notify them again. Like we have a bunch of our folks that are transferring um, on Saturday because that's shift change for us. And so we've made announcements over the last three months when you know, this person is getting this and this person's getting that. Um, so we, after we've made decisions, we've made announcements, but we still put out a transfer list last week so that you can see where everybody's going on Saturday um, in case you've forgotten, in case you didn't hear about it, but just trying to uh, communicate as much as we can because that's just one thing that um, every organization struggles with and especially ours with different shifts and things like that. Some things just get lost. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what do you attribute your leadership style to and, and what kind of is your leadership style? Did you kind of glean that from mentors in the past? What, what's kind of your leadership style? Well, um, I am definitely not one to give a brave heart speech, right? You know, we're, we're not going to take the hill based on some speech that I give. Um, I'm really about um, getting to know people and getting to know what makes them tick and trying to explain um, from kind of their perspective, like what I think about the world, right? And, you know, I've had, you know, I'm, as I'm sure you've had in your career, a bunch of different kind of leaders. And what I've kind of taken my style from is just um, I, people, our employees expect to know what's going on. They expect to be stakeholders in the police department, and which is unlike when I started, when they, you, you were just happy to have a job. And if they told you that you're working graveyards, you said, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to work every weekend this year. I would love it. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, now our employees have an expectation, and rightfully so, to be part of what we are doing at the organization. And so I have really tried to um, not just, you know, go to all these leadership classes over the years, but take um, the important parts for me um, from them, you know, which are um, building stakeholders internally, you know, with your folks, not just telling them how things are gonna go, but telling them why, giving them reasons why, and um, trying to build from there so that they have kind of an under organic understanding of why we are doing what we're doing and, and the plan in the end, right? So I spent a lot of time with that. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to uh, make sure that what how it how it sounds in my head is what, what makes it out to my folks because by the time it gets from me to the captain, to the lieutenant, to the sergeant, sometimes things can be lost in translation. So I spend a lot of time um, trying to make, make sure my folks hear from me about um, where we're going in the future. And so um, that's all kind of a long-windedish answer to like, I really try to invest in our people and what we do here. Cause I really believe in it despite everything that's happened. I mean, my career, I graduated the academy two weeks after 9-11, right? So the job that I thought that I was going to get and the job that I got really changed, you know, in that period of time. And um, the profession has changed tremendously in that time, no matter how you look at it, from having to look at terrorism as a real thing, uh, technology and how that's uh, changed us. And the profession has changed. And I really try to change with it and be um, what the team needs right now, you know, which is ushering us into what the future looks like, you know, leveraging technology to work for us, telling our story appropriately, um, engaging with the community, right? So um, that's that's kind of where I, I stand on, you know, how we, how I still serve the show. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny when you mentioned that, uh, you know, 
in years past that, you know, the culture of, of law enforcement was you take it like, you know, the, the graveyard shift for a year and, and you like it and you just do as you're told um, because that's kind of the culture of law enforcement. It's funny because uh, my wife works as a psychologist. She works for the county and every day she'll come home and talking about, you know, her coworkers that, you know, that the county can't discipline because, you know, they do what they, they call in constantly every every weekend right. and the county can't do anything about it. And I'm like, that was being heard of in, in, in my profession. It's just because of the culture, I guess, of law enforcement that, you know, you couldn't discipline an employee and eventually get rid of that employee. That's a bad employee. It, it, it's just it's just right. a different dichotomy. But it's you know, we're kind of changing that as well. You know, like you said, the younger generation have diff different expectations than, yeah. than we did coming up. Yeah, they have a lot of uh, different expectations and quite frankly, not all of them are bad. You know, most of them are good. It's just in the profession, we almost reject it, right? Because it's changed and, yeah. and you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't how we had it. And what I really try to um, tell myself and encourage my team is one, like how we had it um, doesn't have to be the way it is, right? And wasn't all, it wasn't always great, and you know we didn't always like it. And so let's keep that in mind when we are thinking about how we address our our newer generation of folks. Our newer generation of folks have got it right on work life balance, and and they also want to be part of what we do here. They don't want to be that person that works a shift for 20 years that you know no one really sees them. You know, they want to be part of what we do here. And so we have to allow that. If we want to be an employer of choice and we want people to want to come here, we have to allow them to be stakeholders. We have to tell them what we value. We have to allow them to give us their input on it. And it has to be uh, a constant team effort, right? Rather than um, the way it was when I started where, you know, you were kind of told what to do and you did it without really questioning. And I think that sometimes that's not great. Like sometimes somebody needs to ask you questions, right? Yeah. To make sure that your ideas are squared away and that we're moving in a good direction. So I just really try to encourage my team to, um, you know, not just not leave a meeting with me and say, well, the chief said, well, okay, well, if I want, I could go tell people, if I wanted to do the chief said, I could go tell people that. I want you to say like, this is our, our goal or our vision or our initiative. You know, it's not just my initiative, it's, it's our initiative and here's why. We have to own this from the top down because if we don't, then the employees aren't going to own it. So, you know, just trying to have everyone, like, you know, look at who, look at who we have and, like, we want to keep them. We desperately want to keep them, but also who we're trying to attract, right, as well. And, you know, that it's a different workforce. You know, people are... You know, sometimes balking at the idea of working weekends and nights and things like that. And so we can't do much about that. You know, you got to work weekends and nights as a police officer, but, yep. the, but we can't explain it to you. We can't talk to you about, you know, why you why are you working weekends and nights and how when you have enough seniority, you won't have to anymore. But um, certainly a, lo a lot more talking, a lot more uh, making sure our folks understand, you know, where we're going and why um, than when I came up. Right. Besides, that's where you get all the uh, experience working weekend nights, right? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely. That's happening, yeah. Mm -hmm. where, uh, I'm sure there are lots of bars and restaurants here in town. So, right. you know, working weekends and nights, that's where you get, cut your teeth on the end of the game, right? Yeah. Truly. And in a city like ours, you know, our um, calls for service are typically dwarfed by our self-initiated activity, you know, from our team, which is great. You know, our team's out there working. But yeah, if you're going to work, you know, weeknights, you're not, there's not as much activity as there are on weekends, especially, you know, 
nice summer weekends, you know, day shift or night shift, you know, that's when you have those very memorable calls for service. And that's really when you uh, learn how to do the job. And so, you know, it, it's, it's always good to spend some time on those shifts. Yeah, yeah. So as a chief, what's the most rewarding part of your job? The most rewarding part of my job is when I see like my folks um, succeeding, right? Whether that's someone who wanted to be a police officer who, you know, um, had some setbacks in the academy, had to go back to the academy. Now they're in field training, right? That's a huge win um, for us. Or an employee who maybe had difficulty like with public speaking, now giving like great presentations to the community. Great wins, right? Um, and then some of our, you know, longtime folks um, who, you know, a lot, a lot of time on still out there, you know, uh, making good car stops and good arrests. And so I really enjoy seeing our folks um, like grow and do well. Like that's the most rewarding uh, part of the job for sure is uh, seeing our, our folks be successful. And then on the flip side of that, what's about the uh, most challenging part of your job? I think the most challenging part is telling, telling the story. Right. And internally, um, telling uh, my team um, the story of why we do some of the things that we are doing just in terms of, you know, when, you know, we are beholden to legislative changes and directors of the court and things like that. We don't have a lot of control over that. And so um, what I try to tell my team about those things is like we control what we control. Right. We control our attitude. We control our effort. We control what kind of investigations we do. We don't control. Um, whether people stay uh, in jail, we don't control whether their cases get prosecuted, we don't determine if those are state misdemeanors or felonies. Those are all out of our purview and they have been forever, right? And so let's work on the things that we can control. It doesn't mean that I um, am, not, am not frustrated by those things, but let's control what we can control, right? And so trying to tell that story internally and talk about focusing on crime and focusing on our team and telling, like, telling that story to everyone consistently the same way all the time. But conversely, with our external stakeholders in our community, is telling our story as well. You know, um, like every community, you know, our, our community members want to feel safe. They want to feel informed about what, what we're doing. And trying to tell that story to them on an ongoing basis where they understand what we do, um, but you're not scaring them, right, um, is... is uh, an ongoing challenge where we're, I want to tell them like, we're doing great work. You know, we're, you know, we, I know the last time I counted, we'd gotten like 30 guns off the street and car stops, you know, through November, right? Really excellent work yeah. on our, for our team, right? And that's a story you want to tell. You want to congratulate your team members internally for that part of the story. But excellently, you want to talk about that. But the challenge with talking about that is I talked at a community meeting, yeah, we've gotten 30 guns off the street. And the response I got from a community member was like, how many did you miss, right? How many people came through the city, right, um, that we didn't stop that had guns? And so it's always, a, you know, it's always a balancing act, trying to tell the story of the good work we do without having it, um, having our, our community um, feel alarmed um, by the work that we do. The... In the last, I don't know, handful of years or so with technology and with platforms like Nextdoor, you know, our community, they're a lot, they talk a lot more about things that are going on in, in town, right, than they ever did before. And so trying to talk to them about the things that they're hearing from their neighbors or seeing 
and you like you don't I, I'm not trying to discount anyone's experience but a crime happens like three times on next door like the same crime right because three different you know people will talk about it and there'll three be three or four different chat threads about it and people can really feel like crime is exponentially increased and certainly um, we've had our ebbs and flows with crime um, but we're known we're near our, even our 20-year historic averages in terms of crime are much lower but for a community member, you know, they're hearing about it three separate times, right? So it feels like that crime occurred three times and the crime's through the roof. And a lot of it is really our awareness has increased. Mm -hmm. Our awareness of things and our ability to communicate our awareness to others. You know, five or 10 years ago, if you saw a police car going by, lights and sirens, you're just like, huh, I wonder what that's about. Well, now you can get on a social media platform and you can say, I saw three police cars go by, I wonder what that's about, and you'll get 20 people um, to speculate with you, right, on, on what has happened, right? And so trying to tell a story, tell our story externally where you're validating um, what people are hearing and seeing because you, I don't want the community to feel like I don't believe them, but also that against the backdrop of the data we have and the numbers we have on our crimes is, is always just a balance trying to, to really tell that story appropriately and make people feel heard and listened to um, while also um, understanding the, the actual nature of our, of our crime problem. Yeah, absolutely. So with all that you know, technology that we have today, how, how does your department leverage that social media, um, ring, next door, all that sort of stuff uh, into your operations to, to make the community safer? So, um, great question. We are we try to take it all in. Like our, our social media team, which is just a team of our line employees, both sworn and professional staff, um, do a great job with pushing out information to the community. Whether it's you know a stolen vehicle that we're able to stop and arrest the driver, or other noteworthy calls for service that we have, or even fun stuff that we do when like we open an ice cream shop in town. Yeah. Like they do, they do a great job of trying to tell our story and talk about what we do. Like, uh, excellent work, they're very passionate, they're very uh, motivated. Uh, my uh, public affairs team, our community affairs team, um, our, which includes our PIOs, like we try to monitor things like next door and really not step in unless there's real false information being presented um, because it's just, it would be too much work to try to do that all the time for the number of people we have. So we try to monitor um, what we're seeing on next door and what we're hearing. And if there needs to be some sort of correction made, uh, we'll make it. But um, we just try to use that to keep on the pulse. We, pr we put out updates every week um, about what's going on in the city. And so if we're seeing something on next door, we try to address it in the you know next week's update. So talk about that crime trend and talk about those questions, but really trying to um, make sure we're hearing what people are, are curious about and that we're responding uh, to that. Um, very quickly where, wherever possible. You know, we've had some distraction thefts in the city, which, you know, no city's really immune to those. But if we start hearing about them on next door, you know, the, the next thing is let's start posting about them in our weekly updates uh, to make sure that our community knows that we're experiencing, you know, a resurgence in this particular trend. We have a crime analyst uh, who uh, does a really good job of kind of telling us trends and what she's seeing. And so over the time that I've been here, I've really tried to leverage her to you know, talk to our team like 
on a weekly basis about the crime trends that she's seeing, uh, any information she has about uh, anything that could help us catch these folks. And we've had some successes. We've had some great successes with her saying something as simple as these seem to happen on Tuesday and Wednesday nights. And then you have some officers out on graveyard Tuesdays and Wednesday nights, and they are able to catch people, you know, stealing catalytic converters and things like that. So we've had a lot of success with that. We're trying to find more ways to leverage the information that we collect anyway to get it out to our folks so that they can make, you know, nearish real-time decisions on where they're going to focus their efforts um, in a day. So we're continuing to work on that. And then um, from the community side of things, I've been working for the last handful of months on a dashboard, which I'm hoping to get up by the summer, that will allow our community members to see the status of calls after they've closed. So if you're, you know, curious about something that happened, you know, at walk and don't walk, you know, once that call's closed, you can look it up and say, oh, it was, you know, a disturbing the peace call, you know, that resulted in an arrest. Um, so we're working on that. Um, it's, you know, we are, first we had to get the data and figure out how we're going to parse the data. So it's a process, but I'm hoping that that will also help us with the storytelling I'm talking about with our community. Because I think one of the big things that we've learned over the last five to 10 years with all the social media is that people, I think, did not know um, how many calls for service we get, right? And so sometimes um, when we have a complaint about our timeliness on a call or um, sometimes a sentiment of said very bluntly, what else do you have to do but this handle this problem? It's like, well, you know, we get like, you know, about 100 calls a day you know, um, on a low day and 150 on a high day and trying to explain that to a community member, right, that it's not just this thing that you're seeing in front of you that's happening or the thing that happened to you is that we have competing priorities throughout the day and that while um, in the terms of the grand scheme of things, we don't have a lot of calls for service, we're busier than you think we are, you know, than you might think, oh, Manhattan Beach, I mean, it's my third beach city, I've heard all the beach jokes by now about <laughs> how easy it is and all yeah. those things, and what I always tell people, I'm like, ah, you know, you're working here in Beach City X, and, you know, how bad could it be, and I was like, well, you know, and I took my aunt for a tour of the city, you know, driving her around, I could, she, and every place that she said, oh, that is so beautiful, sweetheart. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got in a fight there, and this guy ran from me there, and, you know, I had a pursuit start here. And so for, you know, even in uh, towns that are as picturesque as this one, um, like I said, everybody comes to the beach. And while we have a very low violent crime rate and, um, you know, our, our city is very safe, things still happen. And I think that that's part of that storytelling is trying to tell our community that things, um, you're safe, but things do still happen here. Right. Well, they're safe because of the PD, right? right? I always tell people, because my city has a similar kind of uh, atmosphere about it, it being safe as well, um, but I tell people that, yeah, but criminals have cars, and they come to our community because we have nicer things. Right. They come here to burglarize and steal, and, and you know, we as a police department, we you know, are the front line against that, so it, it's, it's safe for a reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's, you know, it's always, like I said, that storytelling where it's like, you know, the officer, we had an officer maybe a week ago, you know, um, sees a suspicious car in the structure at the mall and goes out with it. And all of a sudden, as he's going out with the car, he, like, some people start running with merchandise towards the car, right? Um, like, I can't tell that story enough. He was just on a patrol check, saw something suspicious and acted on it, right? And lo and behold, the arrest came to him. Right. Um, but that's the great work that our people are doing on an ongoing basis. And it's really 
as I try to tell as many stories as I can, but you can't tell them all, right? Yeah. Um, but tell her, like, this is like, we hire great people here, and, and we because we do hire great people, that's why he's, you know, where he needed to be when the crime occurred. Yeah. And speaking of stories, you've got a long breadth of career, you know, where you've done different things. Talk about an incident, say, like when you're with the family and they say, hey, Rachel, tell us about a cool thing that you've done at work and, you know, a story that you always bring up. I know it's not all about the car chases and, and running right. through houses and all that, but there's, there's got to be a cool story somewhere, right? Well, I think a lot of um, what we do, um, it's, it's cool in retrospect. Like, yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of the types of fun, like type one fun is like fun in the moment, right? And type two fun is like fun after the fact, like you run a marathon and you know, in the moment it's very challenging, but at the end you're like, I am so proud of myself, like type two fun. And then sure. type three fun is like fun that is never fun, right? It's like, you know, running into Loch Ness. It was ne it's never fun, <laughs> right? But we, we, we got through it, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think a lot of um, the work that we um, end up doing here can be type two fun. Like in the moment it's a little stressful, but um, at, in, when it's over, you're like, well, I mean, um, we did a good job or, you know, something like that. And so, um, I had the occasion for a handful of uh, months to be a part-time observer when we had a helicopter. We used to share, when I worked at Newport Beach, a helicopter with the city of Costa Mesa. And so I was a part-time observer for, you know, just a little bit. And um, I was calling out a pursuit, right? And, you know, pursuits in the police car are really fun. Right. right, but in a helicopter, like super cool. Pursuit? What is that? They still do those things now. We, we 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 do still allow them, <laughs> but this was back in the olden days. Okay, okay. And um, I'm um, watching the pursuit go, and I'm watching it go, and um, the um, pilot's like, "Hey, just so you know, this road is ending, right?" And so um, we tell the officers, and they back off, and and the, it was like a car theft suspect or something like that, and and it's a parade of police cars because this was a long time ago, um, you know, where we didn't necessarily have all the technology we have to tell us how many people are actually in a pursuit, and so it's a conga line of police officers. I tell them the road's about to end. The crook ends up giving up, but I'm I'm thinking because of the the, the station it came out of and the number of um, cars that are following this thing, like this must be like a hardened criminal, right, that committed this crime. And this woman gets out of the car, and she's older, and she's in what would be described as a moo-moo. And I'm just asking myself, like, is this, do we have the right car? It wasn't, it wasn't, it was an out, uh, assist other agency, so I never found out the end, but it's one of those things where if I'm looking for uh, a theft suspect or a robbery suspect, this isn't, this isn't that person, and it was really funny. Um, and at the time, because I'm looking in my binoculars, I'm like, Okay, they got her, but um, not what I was expecting, like that someone's mom would be, you know, popping out of the cars, uh, you know, being pursued yeah. by all these units yeah. and, and things like that. But um, always, the job's always been fun. Um, but sometimes, like I said, just fun is, is relative, but I've had a lot, a lot of really good opportunities. Okay. Yeah, our, our job is unlike any other. And, you know, you always have those stories and those memories once you retire, the camaraderie, all that sort of stuff. It's unlike any other job that, you know, working in an office or, or you know, anything, even even our partners at the fire department. Right. You know, they said, what did you do today? Oh, we poured water on a fire. Or right. We, you, know, no, you know, we get to do some pretty cool stuff. No, I always tell people the job's like a box of chocolates. And most days it's the ones you want, right? Which I just want milk chocolate. I'm a purist, just give me milk chocolate. Yeah. But some days it's the one with that weird coconut in it. And you're like, well, this was, put this one back, right? But yeah, certainly um, the things that you see and the experiences that you have, uh, you, you can't replace them. And 
You know, when I talk about storytelling, you know, when I'm talking to the community about the work that we do, I'm always trying to explain um, to them that we go to the academy, we have field training, um, and our, but our officers are dealing with humans every day. And so, you know, every domestic violence is not the same. Every car stop is not the same. And so our officers are doing the best that they can do um, when the script is being written for them as, as it's being acted out. And so, um, one, um, that means that they're making decisions on the fly, but, but we, and we should give them some grace. Um, but also, like, have that understanding is that the officer doesn't know what they're getting into when they're getting into it. And that like we are just we're responding to situations and really trying to tell that story, where you know well why do they do this and I'm like well I wasn't there, right and I'd have to ask a lot more questions to be able to answer that intelligently, uh, but there are, I'm like I can think of three right now why I would have done it based on what you've told me so, always trying to tell that like we are like we require our teams to know so much. We require them to get through the academy and learn all of the basics of police work, all of those penal codes, vehicle codes, all of those things. We get them out in field training, we require them to learn the city and apply what they learned at the academy. And then we have all this tech in the cars and we want them to, to learn that too and be good at that too and leverage that for themselves. And so we ask our people for a lot, a lot more than they asked when I started. And, you know, and to try to keep that in mind when someone um, you know, doesn't does an A plus job, but maybe misses a few things on something. Is that we're asking humans um, to react in the moment, and they have to know so much all yep. the time. It's just not easy. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, going back to when you said where you were an observer, uh, didn't or was it Huntington Beach that lost a helicopter not that long yeah, ago? Yeah, Huntington Beach um, lost a pilot. Uh, was a year before last, which you know, very, uh, very, very tragic. Uh, incident. Um, and condolences to your department for losing the, the motor officer. Oh, thank you. Um, a few months back, right? Yeah, that was tough for us. I mean, it's still tough for us. Um, you know, I had to talk a lot about Chad, you know, the month that he passed away. And you always, I always wonder, right, when you hear um, officials talking about people, um, especially when they've passed, like, is that person, like, talking them up a little bit because, you know, they're no longer with us? And the beautiful thing about uh, Chad was I didn't have to talk him up. He was funny. Um, you know, he got in a scrape every now and then. Um, he didn't take himself too seriously. And he's a hard worker, hard, hard worker. And he had a good perspective on life. And so um, to lose anyone um, is tough. But to lose someone like that who, you know, he was at the floor of his career. He had nowhere to go up. You know where to go but up. You know, he had so much ceiling, so much potential you know, that he was only starting to realize um, it's just, just really, really tough um, on, on the organization. We're, you know, so small. He had a lot of friends here. And so it's, it's been definitely um, something for our team to really have to try to um, ma make our way through the grief. Yeah, yeah. Again, condolences oh, thank to, you. to you and your family here at uh, Manhattan Beach. So, yeah, yeah. And uh, before I get you out of here, how about some, uh, some words of advice for anyone that's aspiring or just getting into the profession? One, have a good time. Um, this career is supposed to be a long one, right? You play your cards right, you do 20, 30 years. Have fun, um, don't rush, don't be so focused on the next thing that you don't enjoy uh, the thing that you're doing. Um, you know, we, like, I made it to chief in a relatively short amount of time, all things considered, but I really always concentrated on enjoying what I was doing now. 
and not necessarily how that was going to impact my resume. You know, so enjoy yourself, have a good time, uh, be a student of the profession, uh, learn why we do what we do, learn our history um, so you can grow from it. Um, but more than anything, um, like never forget what this job is about, right? And certainly internally, the job's about taking care of your people, taking care of the people who sit next to you in briefing and the people you work with every day. But are we, we are in service to the people, right? And sometimes that can be very frustrating um, to deal with. Um, if there's a hot button issue that's, you know, shining a bright light on the department, that can be challenging, but we are in service to them, you know, and so we do uh, owe them our very best. And so it's okay to get frustrated. It's okay to get down on things, but remember they're why we exist. Um, and if you keep those things kind of in perspective, have a good time, enjoy the moment, and remember why you took the job, I think you can't go wrong. Absolutely, absolutely. Great words of advice there for anybody aspiring to get into it. I know, I know you said you had uh, three mm -hmm. uh, ones at home. Did any of them want to be like you and get into the profession too? or? Well, I think that I have, you know, most of their childhoods, I've been at least a sergeant. And so I think that I have kind of spoiled it for them I because they see uh, me staying late for meetings or doing this thing or that thing. Yeah. And so I don't think that they think that my job is very fun. And so at, at this present time, none of them want to get in the business because I think they don't want to go to meetings yeah. and write, <laughs> right. and write yeah. memos, right? And so um, I think as they get older and we're able to talk a little bit more about kind of the, like I, I wasn't always a manager. I wasn't always a supervisor. Right. I was a line police officer working graveyard patrol, you know, um, talking to people on the side of the roadway. And maybe I can maybe see my youngest all wanting to get in the profession, but my, my older two, I think that they're going to go the way of, um, you know, IT or, or working. Um, what, I guess in, I think my middle child might work as a naturalist or something like that, something uh, more outdoorsy. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully in the future that uh, you know we can inspire some someone to get into this I profession because so. we, we need some we need some more good cops. Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. All right, Chief. Hey, I appreciate you. All right. Thank you so much. Allow me into your to your. Beautiful facility here. I'm going to go take a walk out there on the beach and <laughs> nice. take a look at it. All, All right. right. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank no you. Problem. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. All right. All right, fam. That's it for this Street Life edition of the Black and Blue Podcast. I want to thank Manhattan Beach, California Police Chief Rachel Johnson for allowing me to sit down with her in the Chief's Office of Manhattan Beach PD. And I hope you guys liked watching and listening to this episode as much as I did making it. If you did, hey, go on ahead and let me know by leaving a comment down below. I'll be back in another couple weeks with another hot episode, but till then, y'all know the phrase it pays. Stay black and blue. I'll holler at you. I'm out. This has been a Major D Entertainment presentation.